I'm Michael Counts, and this is episode 12 of Producing Innovation. And for this episode, and, and several more to come, we've decided to do um, a, a multi-part series. At this point, I don't think we know how many parts to the multi-part, but, um, uh, but a multi-part series on the history uh, and, and sort of remembrances of, uh, of Gail Gates et al., um, which was a company that I was a part of with a group of really incredible people from 1995 until late 2002. Um, and the plan for the series is that I'm going to kick it off um, and then we're going to, over time, talk to different, you know, I described this to Michelle Stern as the usual suspects. Um, she'll be next. Michelle was really the co-founder of the company with me, and um, and then there were many people, uh, too many to name right now, but um, these are the people who, you know, um, I worked with and who supported me and whom I supported for a bunch of years as we all, <clears throat> I think, kind of discovered and invented our artistic voices and aesthetic and style and kind of came into our own in many respects or certainly you know cut our teeth most of us were in our 20s at the time into our early 30s how do you produce innovation how do you produce anything it's always been about reinventing a form i think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning it's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of... I didn't even know what at the time. Show up. Show up when you fail. Show up when you fail miserably. Show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to, to be a creator. Just start. Like, don't wait for permission. Sit down at the table with some of the great creators. Some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation. This is You're listening to Producing Innovation. You know, Gail Gates was... Uh, a theater company, um, uh, I guess you could kind of say an arts collective. Um, it was definitely the vehicle within which I did um, all of, you know, most of my early work as a director and designer and producer. And um, and it's funny, you know, I'm sitting here with uh, Katie Pedro, who is a director, um, a collaborator, a colleague uh, with whom... Um, with whom I'm building Counts Projects, the kind of, I, I guess in some way, like the graduation of the early work and early career that I had, which has had many different sort of manifestations along the way. But this is, to me, what we're doing here is sort of the most, I don't know, advanced, maybe mature. I mean, I guess everyone sort of grows up in their career and has different resources and capabilities and, you know, some of the insanity of my 20s has has since fallen away and now I'm I think able to do work in a different way than I was then but anyway I'm sitting here with Katie Pedro who is gonna I think kind of guide this discussion a bit um we'll be in conversation about the history of Gail Gates a lot of this will be obviously my just you know sort of remembering and talking about the intentions behind it and, and what we did and what we didn't do and where it came from and what it all meant to us to me um but, uh, so I don't know, where should we start, Katie? Um, 
I would love to start, you know, it's funny that we're doing this episode this week because um, you had an experience of sort of being uh, returned to one of your your Dumbo Gilgate spaces recently. Could you, um, could you just tell us about what it was like to be back in that space years later in a different context? Definitely. Um, so I was at my son, uh, Dashiell, who's eight, um, was at his best friend Phoenix's birthday party. And we were in this sort of like, I don't know, art space like where they do like visual art classes and after school programs. And it was in Dumbo and I knew I was in Dumbo and I knew I was in the building that Gail Gates used to be in. But somehow after all these years, I didn't make a connection that I was actually in the physical space, just entering from a different way of what Gail Gates was. And I was in there for a while and I think it was like working on my subconscious. Like that sprinkler post looks oddly familiar. And then I was like, wait a second. And I kind of reoriented myself and then I went outside and counted the the uh, the windows from the corner because we had been on the corner of Main and Water Street in Dumbo for about six years in this like incredibly epic 35 or 40,000 square foot space that took up most of the block that's now like eight different spaces. It's like a parking garage and, uh, and a John Fluvog and it used to be powerhouse books and this art space and offices and a bank and like all of those spaces were for six years under the control of me and a bunch of like crazy artists doing like crazy work in a, in a sort of a forgotten industrial corner of Brooklyn that at that time nobody gave a shit about and now is like rivals some of the most valuable real estate in Manhattan. But yeah, so I was in this space and I was like, oh, that's where my desk was and that's where Michelle's desk was and that's where everyone used to sit and that's where this wall was and we'd all like go there and hang out and that's where um, my now wife who worked with us at Gail Gates for a year, like that's where her desk was and this is where all my books were and I used to keep my art here and I used to you know, remember getting into the space early and with two cups of coffee and sitting at my desk and doing the work that I did and it was just and then ultimately I went and explored the rest of this little art space and I came upon the this this archway this concrete archway which was the threshold from the sort of the front space to the back space that we used in many in many shows as a sort of proscenium and um, and I think for a lot of people who ultimately knew and followed and liked our work there was a show the first big show we did in that space was called the field of Mars and the opening of that 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 portal into the backspace was like the big reveal that I think for a lot of people like cemented our place in their consciousness because it was just a magical theatrical moment where we went from like, oh, this is what you think it is. This is what you think theater is. This is what you think we are. This is what you think this space is to like, check this out, whom open this wall. And there's like this crazy huge space behind that wall. And, and so much more, you know, so much more to explore, so much more to see, so much more art, so much more depth, so much more consideration and insanity. And I think that like, so when I realized, and I was in this art space and, and at the end of the, this eight-year-old, well, now nine-year-old's party, they, um, they had like this dance party and it was like, I was like watching these kids dance in a place where we used to have like these like epic raves with Sound Lab and Cultural Alchemy. And I was like, oh my God, like this is the progression of my life. And, and it was so wonderful and it was just cool to be back there. And I think in many ways, I, honestly, that connection and I emailed the side by side pictures of like, this is what this archway looks like now. And I sent it to Tom Fru and I was like, this is, this is what it looked like in the field of Mars. And, and it just brought me back to a lot of that. And at the same time, we all discovered Katie, who runs a lot of our social media and reposted this 
section of, uh, of a book that, that had been published in which Gail Gates was featured in a chapter. And I think all of that brought me back to, I don't know, reconnecting with that time, you know, that, 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 that era of my life, which is relatively short compared to other things, but to me is, is in some ways the most important creatively and professionally. Um, and those people with whom we built that hold a place in my heart that is quite different than, than, than most other colleagues I've had uh, since. Um, so yeah, so being in that space was kind of wild, and to see what's happened to Dumbo since we were since we walked over the bridge as a group together on the first time in that September of 1996 and discovered the space and like and now seeing it it's like a mall it's like it's crazy how active it is like I just I was drove I drove down there and I, I had to leave because I couldn't get a parking spot it was just like such a zoo on a Saturday afternoon that uh, I was like wow this this place has come a long way in 20 years. And remember coming to New York and seeing shows with him and just being introduced to the likes of Reza Abdo and Richard Foreman and Meredith Monk and Robert Wilson and Ana Teresa de Kielsmaka and just everybody who was like doing stuff at BAM when, when going to BAM was still sort of like, what's that, you know, and, and, and people knew, but it wasn't like what BAM is today or Brooklyn wasn't what Brooklyn is today. And, and just seeing crazy shows and then... Continuing that study myself, just really like getting so excited about that work. And I remember going to the Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library and just watching, like going there for the day, for days upon end, and just watching these videos of shows that had happened in the 70s when I was a kid, you know, or some of the early work of Robert Wilson, some of the early work of Robert Rauschenberg, the collaborations between Rauschenberg and Merce Cunningham and John Cage and Trisha Brown's work and Yvonne Rayner and all these like, you know, sort of like as the titans of the avant-garde. And, and I was just, and it was interesting, that was the, the same moment that Ann Bogart and Tadashi Suzuki were starting the City Company. And, um, and I had really discovered through working with Gautam and, and my other mentor, Phil Soltanoff, um, that I was a director and I was a designer and I, and I directed, the first show I ever directed, Gautam and Phil and I co-directed a show called ACDC, um, and, uh, and it was just this crazy, like, just nuts, bizarre show um, that was really the first of its kind to happen in the, in the theater department of Skidmore, because, like, for, a, for a, a maybe, I don't know, five years, like, this freak show descended upon the Skidmore Theater, and it's since, like, normalized back to kind of, like, normal theater in some respects and plays and the like, but for a while under sort of Gautam and Phil's leadership, it, could, it went crazy, and then I was there doing weird stuff, and, and, um, and I just wanted to direct. I just wanted to create. I, I started a series that um, other friends, uh, guys that I went to college with, like Ian Belton and Mike McCartney and um, Holter Graham and a bunch of people, like they continued a tradition that I had started, which was on Thursday nights at midnight, we did a thing called the Failure Series. And it was just this, like, you know, performance art extravaganza, and I just wanted to, like, do... I wanted to create work without the expectation of it being good or important or relevant, and, and we started doing that, and, and, you know, and this all gets to your question. It was, like, from the very beginning, I just wanted to do my own work. You know, I wanted to, to make my own mistakes. I wanted to find my voice. And when I was graduating, after having done a few shows and having gotten some really good feedback and encouragement from Ann Bogart and, and from Gautam and, and from other directors who I respected, 
you know, I just, I like started my first company and which wasn't Gail Gates, it was called C and Hammer Mill. And uh, I went to Europe for a little while over the summer and followed some artists and, and, um, and Gautam had like said, Hey, I, you know, I know Bob Wilson, I could get you a uh, sort of an assistantship or, you know, go work with Richard Foreman or something. And I remember thinking about it and, and everybody in the department at the time, like jumped onto the Saratoga International Theater Institute and Bogart viewpoints, Tadashi Suzuki train, you know, Suzuki training and all that stuff. And I was just like kind of interested in it and interested to get to know Anne. She was very encouraging to me, but I was like, fuck that. I want to go do my own work. And, and, um, I remember inviting Anne and the city company to see my first show, you know, that I directed in the, in the, in the studio program. And, and I just was like, I, I, I love Wilson. I want to, I went to Europe to f- see everything that Robert Wilson was doing in Europe at the time, but I just wanted to create my own work. And when I got back from Europe at the end of the summer, I really resolved that like, I was like, I'm going to start my, I'm going to start a company. So I worked a bunch of jobs, you know, waitering tables and, and, and being a, uh, like a electrician at Lincoln center and just any job I could find was a technical director for this weird show in the village and, um, and saved about $10,000. I worked four jobs for basically six months and saved $10,000 and went back to Saratoga and rented a storefront on Broadway. And, and I, cause at that time it was like, I'm going to start a company, I'm going to do my work, and it's going to be like New York City or anywhere. And I, I, thought, I thought in the anywhere equation, I was like, well, Saratoga is good because like, I know people, there's a community, they, I'm friends with all the people in the, in the shop and they'll let me build sets and I can cast people from out of that program and I know people there and I like the town and it seemed like a cool, vibrant cultural community. Gautam was still there, Phil was still there. So I went and I paid, I think it was eight or ten months rent upfront, and I lived in the back of this space that was actually a storefront. And we set up some uh, grid on the ceiling, and we started. We borrowed some lights from the the theater department, and we just started making shows, and and it just became this incredibly cool thing that year, um, which was basically it was like '94. I think I moved up there in like January second, '94, until that summer where I did my first show in New York, which was on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then that summer, we, that actually September, we took a whole, a whole company, 17 of us went to Prague to do this like insane show that I had conceived all over the city of Prague. Um, and then, and when I came back, that company sort of exploded in like, uh, you know, like everybody was, you know, like sleeping together and partying together and making art and fighting and loving each other. And it was just like, it was just like so white hot that it exploded. But in the wake of that, I met Michelle Stern, um, her, uh, a colleague or a a friend of hers from, from, from NYU had been in Prague when we were there with, with the CN Hammer Mill company. And we met, he said, when you get back to New York, look up Michelle Stern, she's your people. And so when I got back to New York, I went and met with Michelle Stern and we, talked and got to know each other and then we started Gail Gates in earnest in in uh in 95 and um and she was just you know super talented super crazy was like down for anything and um and we we started this company invited some other people in some came most left she stayed and we started building this company and it was funny that the same things that I apply now the kind of entrepreneurship and like audacity that I champion today like in everything that I do and I try and encourage in, in, in other people as sort of, you know, when I mentor people or whatever, you know, what we talk about a lot actually of, 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 um, of in our discussion of like you as a young director and pitching and things like that. It was like, 
I had this immense audacity at the time. And it was funny, Annie Hamburger talked about it when we interviewed her and talking about, like, that I walked in to her office, like, right around this time, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this show, and we're going to take over Central Park Lake, and we're going to float stages and these huge projection screens. And she was like, just, inc- and like, it was just insane to propose that, but, like, I meant it, you know, and I wanted to do it. And, 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 and I've since, I think, per, you know, since pursued the approach and employed the approach of just, like, saying, I'm going to make a show on a bus and, you know, take people through the town. The buses are going to cost a million and a half dollars a piece, but we're going to do it. And it was just like insanity. But the great thing about Michelle and the great thing about that community was like, everybody was down for like, oh, that sounds crazy, but like, let's do it, you know? And, and, and like, no one made any money and everyone was like, you know, broke and, and awesome. And, and we just made work and convinced people with things like access to old office buildings in the financial district, which were some of our first venues and, and then ultimately in Dumbo that like, you know, our pitch ultimately when we, when we, after we had worked with the lower Manhattan cultural council, this again was like pre nine 11. So like LMCC was this like tiny little organization, um, run by this woman, Jenny Dixon, who was just like this like maverick of a, of a leader and um, she liked me. She liked my spirit, my work. She helped me secure use of some of these whole floors of office buildings in the financial district, which now it seems like completely crazy that they ever let that happen. And we made these crazy shows. And, and then we were getting, we, had, we, we ultimately went from like one very short residency in 55 Water Street where we did this huge show with a, where we installed a field of grass um, throughout the whole of basically a 50,000 square foot f- floor. Um, and created a 12-hour performance that happened over seven days. And then from that, got invited to have a, 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 another space in another building, but like for almost a year. And then when that was ending, we, we were introduced, because I knew I'd gotten to know like real estate guys, because um, we were always looking for space. And this guy said, there's this thing, there's this place called Dumbo. There's this, or actually, they called it uh, Fulton Landing at the time. It wasn't even Dumbo yet. It was like, he was like, I want to take you over there. And there are these guys that are developing this area and they have this space. And we went over and I met him and, um, and we saw, we were shown three spaces and one of them was the home that became Gail Gates. And it was this like incredible space. And, and I was just, I, I tried to act cool. And I was like, oh yeah, this'll do. You know, I had a camera with no film in it. This is like before the days of digital photography. And I was just taking pictures of the space as if I was like reporting back to somebody. And it was just a prop, but it, I, thought, I thought it made me look official in what I was doing. And, and I was like, this'll do. I said, it's a little small for what we're trying to do, but it'll do. And just like, and ultimately we were able to, and we wrote a proposal to them. And, and the thesis of the proposal was like, we're going to do crazy art here that doesn't happen anywhere else in New York or the world. And as a result, people are going to come across the bridge and come to Brooklyn, which at that time was not something that was common or usual. And people are going to come here and we're going to help make this area and this neighborhood cool. And, and we're going to make it artistically and creatively vital. And that's going to help your, you know, your endeavors to make, to sell real estate here. And they were like, okay, we'll give you a year. And, and we started in September and we made our first sort of shows and exhibitions and parties and events. And, um, and it was like, you know, that was the, the, the it was like basically <laughs> since then, it's just been like the next show after the next show for 20 plus years of like, oh, I want to do that. And then it was like, I want to do this and I want to do the next thing. And the next, it's like, what's the next thing around the corner? We always used to joke 
and I'll, I'll, I'll end with the, this long, long, long answer to that question. Um, we would always say, like, well, what's your favorite show? And, the, and our, our common joke answer was, or what's your favorite work that you ever created? And it was always my next one. And that was really our, like, our, our, our MO for that whole troop of people, which were just some of the best, most creative people I know and have ever known. And, um, and so that was like the early days of Gail Gates. And I just, I guess the said another way was I just wanted to do my own work. I just wanted to create my own voice. I just wanted to find out, like, what is the work? Like, I know what the work of Robert Wilson looks like, and it's fucking awesome, but I know what it looks like. I know what the work of Richard Foreman looks like. I was just like, what does the work of Michael Counts look like? And at the time, early on, it looked a little bit like Robert Wilson's work, but eventually I think I found my own voice, my own style, and my aesthetic. And I actually really appreciated PAJ, the Performing Arts Journal, which Gautam and Bonnie had been the editors of and the founders of, it eventually wrote a piece. They've written a couple of pieces about my shows, but eventually they wrote one. And it was really like, Michael Counts has really found his voice. And they, they articulated what we all knew, which was I'd really been influenced by Robert Wilson and Reza Abdo and other people early on. But like after 1839, which was a show I did back then, it was like that really sort of cemented my aesthetic. And then so long ago, I can't remember, which was really the next show was like, that was the one, I think that was the, the best creative expression of who I was and was becoming at the time. And probably the first that was like sort of, um, uniquely mine in a way. And, uh, and, and I recommend that for anybody. I recommend, you know, I think that there's value to like going being the assistant of some fantastic director or finding your own way in, in, in that, in that sort of, you know, like in that sort of the apprentice model is a very valid model and it's worked for artists of, of all different types and disciplines for centuries and probably longer. But for me, I just wanted to be an outsider. And I think honestly, part of that, just like not to psychoanalyze myself too much, but I think part of that was I just, the safe place for me was like outside. It was like, there was a sort of an isolationist spirit that I had of like, I was like, I didn't want to, we talked about it last time with Ashley. I know the last podcast, if you're listening was like with Ashley Tate and we were talking about how she's one of the, an artist who like goes to see everything. And I was like, I saw a lot of work, but there were also times in my career when I just couldn't see anybody else's work. I just like, it, it was somehow it like, it scared me to be, do anything other than just my, what I was focused on and. Maybe it was threatened, maybe I don't know what it was, but that was the truth of that time. And as a result, I was like, I'm gonna go off in some corner and just make shows and make weird stuff and not be guided by what anyone else is doing and not like take a play off the shelf and do my version of, of Death of a Salesman, but just like, just f make the shows and sh manifest the things that were going on in my head and my soul and my vision of things. And that was, that created a decade of work for me and, and in some ways more since, but. I think it's really funny that you bring up the Performing Arts Journal articles because I actually just read all of those in the past week. I was going through Gail Gates Press and I actually read like every Performing Arts Journal piece that has been done about you. So I like, I know exactly what one you're talking about. I just read it, um, but I think that what a lot of the press that I read sort of told me about you and Gail Gates and in listening to you talk with this sort of like fervor for wanting to create your own work, um, I think what I take away from it is that you were somehow able to do two things. Like you were able to create your own work and, and follow that path, but you were also able to really 
actually achieve your goal of of sort of making contributing to Dumbo in in a large way or uh, creating work that people want to see and those are sometimes things that are hard to reconcile um can you can you talk about you know the, the marriage of doing your own work and also um building an audience and serving mm. a people totally um you know I, i've always like I don't know. I think this is I've 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 gone back and forth on this, but I ultimately think the same thing about work and and like making art and theater as I do about products and other things, service, like just anything that you're making and kind of offering to the world. It's like if it especially now in the world of social media, like just make something that's good. Make something that's different. Make something that 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 does what you're promising it'll do. Make a great product that, and then it markets itself. Like people will find it and they'll tell people about it. And and I really had that faith back then in Dumbo. I was like, I said, and I, and I was absolutely certain that if we were able to just do our 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 make our art, we were going to draw people there because it was going to be true and unique and different and odd and beautiful and fucked up and 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 and, and challenging in the ways that that. To me, at that time, art—I wanted my art to be, you know—and probably still, still do in most respects. But I mean, I've, I've like—it was a little pretty dark. My, my work back then was a lot of it was pretty dark, and I think I've, I've mellowed a bit um, from from that standpoint. But, but like, I just felt like if we make really excellent art and do things that aren't happening anywhere, people will come, and that'll serve the neighborhood. And, and I think other things, you know, like in the in the years after we established what we were doing there like St. Anne's opened and and Susan Feldman and St. Anne's you know presents you could kind of say in, in it's a similar universe of work but that work to me is much more established and and successful and sort of tried and true shows that have been elsewhere and really work or artists musicians that are really established and and she's done an incredible thing in Dumbo and I think she deserves a long future there but at the time we, me, and some of the other, you know, artists who were really the sort of, I think, the earlier pioneers of Dumbo were just like going further to the edges, I think. And, 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 and I just always felt like, you know, as was, I think, always true with the avant-garde generally is like, it was just like, I wasn't doing it to get an audience. I, I didn't really care if anybody came. Richard Foreman has this great thing where he, or when he first started his company, and I remember reading this and like uh, really believing in this. He had said to a, a troupe of actors that he was working with on one of his early shows, he's like, if no one comes, we still perform the show because it's not about them. It's not we're doing it for them. We're doing it for us. We're doing it for, like, existence. And if people come and watch, great. But if no one comes, we're still going to do it. And I just, like, believed in that. And we had, we had times when very few people came. And we had times where people were banging on the doors to get in. There were lines down the block. And, and, and to, me, to me, both were valid and both were... were were successful and and I think that's part of what made Dumbo at that time. I mean there were so many wild things happening there then. I mean the the, the girls who who ultimately opened the restaurant Superfine, I mean back in like the late 90s they were doing that in their apartment in a loft and they were having these these supper clubs once a month and it was like a big deal to get like invited to one cuz it was such a small capacity and I remember going to one it was like a fashion show and a DJ and you had to like walk through this like tiny hole in a sheetrock wall into this other space and there was food and drinks and it was awesome and that was the basis of them starting this restaurant that's now been open for probably 20 years and it's one of the great restaurants of Dumbo but like at that time I just remember being there and feeling like 
this is what this is this must be what Soho was like in the seventies or something like like it felt like the frontier and I remember thinking like well maybe no one's ever going to give a shit about what we're doing here but it felt like the frontier it felt like we were inventing something I mean in in its own way I always romanticize like that era of like Gertrude Stein in the twenties in Paris and all that stuff and I and I I don't make a comparison between this and that but but in a way. Whatever I loved about those stories of Paris in the twenties and that culture, I feel like I felt like there was there was a shred of that in what we were doing, and it just felt like there were people, there were communities. I mean, the Wooster Group and all those guys were like always around, and 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 um, and Collapsible Giraffe and Radio Hole and all that. All those companies were all coming up together. People whose work I still love today, but we were all like. I don't know, friends and working on each other's shows and partying and going out and sleeping together and fighting and, 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 and competing in a, in a, in a interesting way about art and things and like, you know, loving each other's work and dissing each other's work and challenging each other. And, um, and like, it just felt like, wow, it's like, this is, I feel like I'm so grateful that I have this this time and I still as a you know a, a years have passed and I'm in my you know hopefully the middle of my career and midlife and whatever and and I still think about that time as like I'm so grateful that I had that time I'm so grateful that I, cause I I've met people who are of my age cohort and I'm like oh wow like like I got to like run around Europe and do shows in Thailand with crazy people and uh, Prague and take over and do you know like guerrilla style theater at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and 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 have this space and make this crazy art and do shows in nightclubs and and I was like wow like I could have easily not had that I could have like gotten a job out of school and like done that for my 20s and instead I felt like I I was I was like I mean I hope for my kids I hope that they have the types of adventures that me and some of the people I'm talking about had at that time in our lives because I feel like it's made me a better person for sure. Definitely made me a better artist, and 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 um, but I feel like it's it's touched me on a lot of different levels. A big reason that I'm a fan of Gail Gates' work is that I'm, I'm I really love cheap theater magic. Anything that you can sort of create from nothing that, to make it look incredible, and I think that's something you're really good at. Can you uh, tell us about the most memorable um, spectacle moment etude that you? that you created with Gail Gates? Um, there were a lot of those because that was like that moment, that moment of magic, um, that like, how did they do that? Or like that just like, to me, my favorite emotion in art is like complete and utter surprise. Like I just, I just, when, I, when you're just like, how did they do that? Or why did they do that? Or where did they come up with that? Like I love seeing in people's art and theater where it just feels like their thought process. Like sometimes I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I see you. You got there from there to there to there. Got it. Okay, whatever. When I'm like, when someone's like just these leaps of imagination whoom, to places that you'd never expect anyone to go, I'm like, that's what I'm into. And in ways that you, we pull off things. I mean, one to me that was, was, was we were really known for in the later years was um, the opening of So Long Ago, I can't remember. We had built this 65 foot by 12 foot, probably... 2,000 pound aluminum and wood wall that had a hole in it and we were referencing this the, this old Buster Keaton moment when the, the house, the front, the facade of the house falls and he is standing on the ground in front of it and he goes through the window and it's as if he would have been crushed but he goes through the window and it's this like classic Buster Keaton bit and so we did that moment where this wall 
and we were probably, it was probably absurdly dangerous that we did it this way. The audience was sitting about maybe six feet back from where the wall hit the ground. And, and there's an actor standing there in this moment and he had just gotten dressed. He stood there very like, you know, sort of, um, composed moment. And then you just hear click. And then this wall starts to slowly fall. And then there's like 2000 pound wall falls right at the audience and he goes through the hole in the wall and then a tap dance number starts and Michelle Stern comes out and they do this incredible number and like people lost their minds and the first time we did it with an audience on the opening night of so long ago I can't remember people were sitting right there it was like two long 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 rows of audience and like people's hats blew off and like and it was just like people just roared and it was so exciting and improbable. It was because it was so improbable. That's, I think, part of the emotion. It's not just surprise. It's how improbable a, a moment can be. Um, and that was, I, I always loved that moment and I think made us and audiences giddy with surprise and wonder, especially audiences who had never been to our space before, which was a lot of that audience. And like, like it was just like once, once the wall fell, it was like, oh shit, like this is going on. Like, like and then now we're going to explore and there was so much possibility. I feel like that's, that's the moment that I love so much in, in theater. Um, there was another, as we were talking about it before you asked the question, it was, it was in addition to kind of the, what were the moments of theatrical magic? It was like, what were the moments of just absolute sheer insanity that like should never have happened? And, and I just, I, there's the, it was the first real true like Gail Gates at all production. It was in fact the first postcard that had our name on it. We, before that we had just been sort of like this, this group of artists and that was the, the first, the time we introduced Gail Gates at all, um, which is another story I'll get to at some point. But, but we had we had been allowed use of the the fifty first floor of fifty five Water Street, which was this huge, three hundred sixty degree, like a full floor, windows all the way around on the fifty first floor, and we were given use of the space for six weeks. And I, the, the moment, like I stepped onto the floor the very first time, I was like, I want to put a field of grass here. It was like, it was just, it, it felt like, it felt like an acre. It was actually over an acre of space in, in the sky in lower Manhattan. And I just felt like, it just seemed like that flat plain. And I was like, I want to put a field of grass here. Cause it just seemed again, like improbable. Like you go through this like marble lobby in the financial district, up escalators, get on an elevator, go up this like, you know, chrome bedecked, like L elevator up to the top of this office building where like Bear Stearns, the investment bank had been up until before we, we took it and um, and you open the doors and now you're like in like a field of grass and you're out exploring and so forth and and we, so I pitched the idea they gave me, again it was like I met with these like the management company of this like you know billion dollar office building and I kind of convinced them that we were like crazy but not too crazy and visionary but like practical and and they let us have it. And so we went out to the to the to the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn and cut down as much grass that it's called Phragmites, it's marsh grass. It's that picture. And we went out and cut down like a truckload of it and brought it back and then we and then we bought a truckload of, of one inch foam to like stick it into. It was like um like a florist foam basically. And we'd like to plant the grass because we couldn't put it all put dirt in. And we'd hire this production manager and we were like setting it up at weeks and weeks and weeks of work and rehearsing and casting and the whole thing. And and um there was a point when they were like, Oh, is this is this all fireproofed? And we were like, oh, no, we're going to fireproof it. And so our, our production manager, technical director, 
sprayed it all down with fireproof, and then they had the building. It wasn't like the fire marshal that came in to inspect. It was like the because we it never would have happened had that happened. But the building guys came and they were like, "Oh, we're just going to do a flame test on it to see if your fireproofing worked." And <laughs> and and the problem was is that we were so far gone. It was already installed. So like the idea of like of like it being unsafe or saying like you guys never should have done this like that ship had sailed it was like now how do we control the damage because it was already happening and i remember being there and the guy from the building came and he held up this is like these these Phragmites has this big it's this grass you've seen it a million times like in the Meadowlands. It's this big, big like puff of like this like i don't even know what it is but this like big puff of a sort of a like a not a flower but something at the end you look at the picture you'll see what i mean but but it was um uh, so it was the guy held it up and it, we'd sprayed it and he put a, 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 a like um, a can like a f- um, flame to it and the thing didn't just like go it, it, it like exploded it like ignited like it was it was dipped in gasoline because it was just so dry and and, <laughs> and we just like because and everyone like looked at each other was like is like everyone took a breath and then they were like okay we're just gonna be very careful. And the guys knew that, like, if anything happened, even if they had taken it all out, like, there was a greater risk of that than, like, just letting it happen. And, and like, and it happened. But, like, like now it's like I laugh at it. Like, there's no way in a million years this should have happened. And, and yet people came and saw it. And it was so improbable that, like, it became this, like, this, like, sensation for the one week that it happened. And it was during a snowstorm in New York at the time. And it was, like, people came and people... F- flipped out and there were people who came multiple times there was there were several people who came and, and stayed for 12 hours and watched the entire show unfold over 12 hours and like it, it was the basis of a lot of things to come for us but it was like I just laugh at it now I don't think I've actually ever told that story but it was just like so nuts that that we had just so like we had gone so far that that the only the only option was just like keep going forward like make it happen let it happen be careful but like now it, it never in a million years would that happen today it just it just it would be impossible so that was like truly the craziest of all the crazy things before i ask my next question just a reminder to follow us on facebook and instagram at counts projects or on our website at countsprojects.com that's the best place to stay updated on our current work and find the next episode of our podcast can you tell us a little bit about what the production process was like? Definitely. Um, we did a lot of things at Gale Gates. Um, we had uh, we did exhibitions of artists and artists from the neighborhood and solo exhibitions of the resident artists. But the theatrical work that we did that was really like the, the, the company's work were tended to be shows that I conceived, uh, you know, having been a fan of like the kind of auteur school of the director where, you know, Robert Wilson was sort of conceiving, designing, directing, scripting, you know, like it was like there's a world of theater where it's like, oh, you take a play and you get, you know, a lighting designer and a sound designer and a set designer and you, you know, you cast it and you sort of stage it to the direction or you deviate from the stage direction. Like to me, it was like I started from a blank page and just made a show and found text and would bring in a writer to write some things, but then I'd write things and we'd use music found and then Joe Debs would create a score and it was much more of a sort of a totally bespoke, you know, all-encompassing creation that 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 when we credited them, they were much more, more often than not as like a, an artwork, like created by Michael Counts, you know, developed, produced by, by Gail Gates, the company, and that approach. 
because they were very like singular in that way. They were based on a creative vision. And so, and often for me, they were derived from a, a moment of inspiration or, you know, like, like, a. Um, 1839 was really s s conceived walking through three galleries in the Met one day and just seeing a series of paintings in a row that sort of I created a story that connected them and then and then made a show, spent a year making a show about that. Um, so long ago I can't remember was I conceived it when I was um, in, uh, I went to the Ab um, to the uh, uh, Avignon Theatre Festival with um, Joe Melillo um, uh, from BAM to see Pascal Rambert's work that Kate Moran was in at the time, and I conceived and laid out sort of a vision for so long ago, so long ago I can't remember, which was going to be an adaptation of the Divine Comedy, but like done in a super autobiographical way, as opposed to saying like like that that piece as an example was like okay I'm going to take a structural concept the Odyssey like I did my version of the Odyssey yes there was a an Odysseus yes there was a Telemachus but there was also like my odyssey and and it was it was sort of my using that structure and that story as a way to find my way into it and to overlay it with my own narrative um similarly the, the so so long ago i can't remember was sort of my rendition of what would hell purgatory and paradise look like in the 500 now 500 years later from when dante wrote it and what would it be in in if i was there you know what i mean and how it was like and overlaid my own challenges and struggles at the time and my own you know uh, dreams and limitations and, and 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 demons of sorts and that was what that piece was you know and and like so that was sort of how I guess they were conceived and then I think they were developed where I would sort of share that vision with Michelle and 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 and, and Tom and Mike and the others and and kind of enlist their you know, kind of get them to buy in too. And more often than not, they did. We were all very I think, supportive of each other's work. And though they worked in studio and created more sculptural work, I think they respected that, that I was sort of taking a similar, you know, singular creative approach. But then we would build these things together and everyone would have a significant contribution to the style and look and, 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 and so forth of, of it. And there were people who collaborated in, in deeper ways. And Joe Deebs, for instance, a composer, like he really had carte blanche to like compose and we would talk about structure but he was he was a composer and he would make music and and we would maybe go back and forth and he would take feedback and we talk about vibe but it was I mean we were, we were all there all the time it wasn't like oh we did this and then we were off doing our other shit and auditioning and working like everybody was there all the time like that was our job from from the better part of a decade no one ever had any money or we'd do like take a little pickup job or here or there and we would just, that was it. Like, we always joked that there was no B plan. It was like, this was it. <laughs> you know, we were going to, like, you know, make it as an artist, make it doing what we wanted to do and loved, or I don't know what, like, it, but, and we all did um, in, in different ways. And I think we all took our capabilities from that time and, and brought it forward. But, um, but you know, and, and I think there was, the last thing I'll say about that is there was just a tremendous amount of, 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 like, cross inspiration. Like, things that one of us would be doing would sort of inspire and bounce off each other. And because we were there all the time together and kind of working together and creating and supporting each other and giving feedback and hanging out, it was our social world as well. I mean, we were just there all the time. We basically lived there. And there were times where some of us literally lived there and, and slept there. And, and it was just like, you know, I think that that was, it was very organic in that way. And, 
you know, just in fairness, I know that some some of my colleagues from that time would also say that, like, you know, I was pretty singular and I was, you know, believed in what I was doing and I would fight for the ideas that I cared about and sometimes to a fault. But, you know, I was also like, I'm making the shows that I'm making and this is a singular artwork and, and, um, and there was a vision behind that. And I think that that was both a virtue for the company and a challenge for the company. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to, to do that and be supported in that by the people who we worked with. I read an interview with Michelle Stern um, when Gail Gates decided to, to end their time together. And she had, you know, she did a, a really eloquent piece about it. Um, can you, how do you know when to move on? Um, that's a, that's a tough question. And that's one that I've like really wrestled with in the, in the years since. Um, you know, I, at that time, I like Dumbo was sort of ascending, right? Our space was getting smaller. More people were coming into the neighborhood. The Walentises and Two Trees management that like had given us the space, they were starting to like carve it up and take that back and our space was getting smaller. And in many ways, like doing the things that we did made me understand that like anything was possible. I could do anything. And I've talked about that before in the in the podcast, but like through all of those productions, I just realized you can do anything. Like we could do anything. We could we could take over a floor of an office building and fill it with grass. We could make a show in forty thousand feet. We could create work in the the side of a mountain in Japan. It was just like, what are you up for? You know, what what how how hard are you willing to work? And I think as a result of discovering that over and over, and then pushing my own limits and 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 discovering that in a deeper sense, I got to the point where my hopes and dreams and visions for the things I wanted to do were just getting, were going beyond the space. And, and it was also after, right after 9-11, and I felt like, I mean, I, we all stood in Dumbo in front of our space together and watched the towers fall with our own eyes. Like, not on camera, not on video or on the news, but, like, with our own eyes. I saw people jumping, you know, it was like, I was a different person after that. I think everybody was. And I just sort of, I, there's some pivot. I can't quite explain it that happened in my life after that. And other things happened in my life and shifts happened in my life. But I just felt like that like an era was over. And for me, it just made the most sense to to kind of move on. And, and it took, there were years where I didn't, where it was really like, I mean, Michelle once described it in a way as like a divorce, you know, like we're in the, and the, the family was, was, was disrupted. And it was something I could really identify with. And there are times when I wish we hadn't. I wish we had handed it off to the next generation and let Gail Gates continue under different leadership. Um, I think we all felt so personally attached to it, and that didn't make sense at the time. But sometimes I wish we had done that. I wish we had found a new executive director and artistic director and let them take it. Because I think, you know, as many companies at that time in Dumbo, like like Smack Mellon and St. Anne's and others, were there then and they're still there. The, the, the Two Trees and Molentis has like kept this promise to them and let them have space in an ongoing way. For me, there was a great deal of creativity in that community and there was a great deal of destruction in that community. And some of it was really healthy and, and, and passionate and inspired and some of it was really destructive and, 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 and codependent and all kinds of you know, things like that that people in communities struggle with. But... I wanted to take it all to the next level, and that then really what started then was the ride, and an idea of taking my love of 
spectacle and, and site-specific theater and journey pieces to a more mainstream audience, which has really been the trajectory, trajectory of my career since then, which is, you know, it's funny, I'll, I'll end with this point that, that the reason I started doing site-specific theater was that I was so in love with the ideas of the avant-garde, and I saw it all happening in this very, like, siloed, you know, in-the-know, high-art, sort of cultural elite landscape, and I hated that, you know? Like, I, I, I was like a normal kid, grew up on the Upper East Side. My parents weren't artists. My grandmother, who actually Gail Gates was named after, was, was an artist and a, and a painter and a real inspiration to me, but, like, I grew up like amongst normal working people, very middle class upbringing. But the, the Met was like a sacred place for me. And I was like, and I, I kind of wanted, I didn't, I wanted the ideas that I had come so passionately, so believed in so passionately to be more accessible to more people. I felt like they don't need to be just for people who wear black and hang out downtown. It, it could be for everybody. Like, and that idea of a cultural elite was sort of against the grain of who I was and wanted to be. So I started making a site-specific outdoor work in places where people would just come upon it because I wanted people to just come upon it. I wanted them to experience it not because they had heard about it or were in the know or you know knew where to look, but because we took it to them. And, and, and so some of those ideas led me in the, as they sort of matured into wanting to like take some of those ideas that we were really wrestling with and pioneering in Dumbo, making the early, the early days of sort of immersive theater, which is obviously very de rigueur today, but like the beginnings of it in many ways. And, and I wanted to t help take that, be a part of taking that to a broader audience. So the ride really was, I mean, the ride sort of metastasized into something different because of you know, the, the impact of money and investment on, on, on creative ideas and, and whatever. But that idea was born of like taking everything I had learned and done in Dumbo and wanting to take it to a more mainstream audience. And, you know, and, and I think I'm glad I did that. And I'm glad that, that so many, you know, I don't, I don't second guess anything, but, you know, I'm grateful for having had both experiences. Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.